The following is a message by Dr. Dennis Johnson from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Well, welcome, and welcome back. Welcome to those of you who are joining our community uh, this year. Welcome back to those of you who have been away and are back again. As we begin this new academic year, it seemed to me that we would do well to listen to the Apostle Paul's prayer here for the Christians of Colossae, which we have heard, and really to take our lead from what he reports as the concerns that preoccupied his own heart as he approached God's throne of grace on behalf of these believers whom he had never met. As you could tell, he talks about hearing of their faith in Christ Jesus and of their love for all the saints and of their hope for the inheritance reserved for them. He had heard about it, no doubt, through Epaphras, who had been uh, one of his colleagues and would preach the gospel in Colossae, but he had not met them face to face. And yet what he heard gave him reason for great thanks, as we hear in verses 3 through 8. But he also was aware that the church at Colossae in the western area of Asia Minor uh, faced a danger. Uh, In the heart of this letter, the Apostle Paul addresses a, a specific form of deceptive teaching that was threatening the church's confidence in the Savior to whom they had entrusted their lives and their eternal well-being. Scholars now call it the Colossian heresy. It doesn't seem as if the Colossians themselves had succumbed to it yet, but Paul sensed the danger, and so he writes to warn them about it. Scholars debate what exactly went into the Colossian heresy. It seems to be some sort of a stew with a lot of different ingredients in it. Um, maybe some Jewish apocalyptic mysticism, maybe some preoccupation with the ceremonial law that God had given to Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai, maybe some pagan dualism as well. Ascetic practices seem to be important to the Colossian heretics that were threatening the church, maybe extended fasting that would provoke visions and ecstatic, extraordinary experiences. Um, From the the way we kind of overhear Paul's side of the conversation, uh, which is always a little risky, but it's important to to use that way, we can begin to gather that uh, also the the spreaders of this false doctrine had reservations about the idea that the supreme God would ever mess with the, the stuff of human matter or material world, because Paul really belabors the reality of the Incarnation In Christ, he says, in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He really emphasizes that. And in his prayer, which is what we're going to be focusing on, verses 9 through 14, he begins just to shadow some of the themes that he will address in this refutation of the heresy threatening the Colossians. He touches on themes like knowledge, spiritual wisdom, power, maybe even the imagery of light and darkness were things that the Colossian heretics were presenting to the believers of the church there. 
He's anticipating then some of the themes that he will address later in the letter. So we might ask, in the light of what need evoked the letter and provoked Paul's preemptive prayer here to the Father, do we need this prayer? I mean, it is the word of God after all, but even though Westminster grants academic freedom to our students, I doubt that you're going to find a living, breathing proponent of the Colossian heresy advocating that on this campus. I could be surprised, but I doubt it. Do we need this letter? Absolutely. Because we are involved, the details may be a little different, but we are involved in the great spiritual warfare that also threatened our brothers and sisters in first century Colossae. This is a place of spiritual warfare. If you thought seminary was sort of a three or four or two or five year summer camp, you're in for a rude awakening. Well, even summer camps aren't as great as uh, they, they might claim to be. Uh, this is warfare. I mean, and we're in over our heads against opponents that are stronger and slyer than we are. Paul writes to the Ephesians, a letter that has many, many parallels to his letter to the Colossians. He says, we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And if that caution doesn't wake us up and put us a little on edge, I don't know what would. So welcome to seminary where you just get to study the Bible. It's warfare. It's warfare. In the next year, you will be tempted in many ways. You may be tempted to cut corners in your research. You may be tempted to cheat on exams. You may be tempted to give up your studies altogether or to abuse alcohol or medications or to blow up at your husband or your wife or your children or to skip church or to make yourself look good by making others look little. The list could go on. We're involved in spiritual Warfare, And so we need to hear Paul's prayer because he opens his heart and his prayer life to the Colossians and really writing under the inspiration of the Spirit to the church down through the ages to us today in order to show us how to pray for ourselves, for each other, with each other, how we can go into this new year of warfare, spiritual warfare, with armed with the prayer that we are taught here by the Spirit of God through the servant of God. Consider three things with me. The fact that Paul prays. That's the first thing I want to focus on. Secondly, the content of Paul's request. And then thirdly, the result of God's answer to Paul's prayer, to Paul's request. Notice, first of all, the fact that Paul prays. Actually, it's Paul and Timothy. You notice the plurals throughout here, and he indicates that Timothy is in some sense a co-author with him. It's clearly an apostolically inspired letter, but Timothy participates, as we see in verse 1. And here throughout, Paul's really including Timothy and saying, we are praying for you. From the day we heard about your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you. It's easy in theological education, as in the rest of life, to focus our attention and our energies on what we have to do. You are encountering 
even this very day, syllabi, that terrible four-letter word, that forecasts for you the demands of the next three months. In this kind of a setting, you may well find that the pressure of thousands of unread pages and looming deadlines tempt you to fixate on reading, memorizing, performing well on quizzes and exams, analyzing other arguments and generating your own, outlining and writing with the correct footnote in bibliography form, by the way, uh, structuring sermons and illustrating sermons and delivering sermons for evaluation, all the things you have to do. But we do well, first of all, to notice that Paul reports his prayer to show them and to show us that what he eagerly hopes to see in the lives of these believers, the things he's going to go on to describe as behavior that brings credit to the Lord, lives that bear fruit in good works, that they come to know God better, that they're strong in his strength to endure that they give thanks for his rescue from darkness through the son of his love. All those things he wants to see in their lives are his request that God give them those very gifts. Paul's prayer, Paul's wish list as he goes to the Father is not a thinly masked to-do list for the Colossians. Now he will give commands and he will give warnings But here he's really saying, I want you to know that the good fruit that I'm longing for, that I hope and long and pray to see in your life, is not something you can generate. I'm praying to the Father to give these things to you. So the first thing for us to learn from the very fact that Paul prays and lets us in on the prayer is that people who actually really believe That God is sovereign over all things and certainly sovereign in his grace in Christ. That we're utterly impotent to do anything worthwhile apart from his sovereign grace. People who really believe that continually pray. We continually pray. So when the pressures of our duties and our deadlines pull our hearts away, from the presence of the Father in prayer. A little warning alarm should go off in our minds or in our hearts. Uh, We know that unbelievers have good reason for worry and workaholism. They have no one to help them but themselves. But children of the Father can, must go to the Father to ask him to give us the good gifts that he promises and he gives to those who believe that he is sovereign and believe that he is gracious to those who come to him in Christ. Pray for yourself, pray for each other, pray with each other, that in the midst of our strenuous labors, we will not forget to be a people at prayer. Well, what does Paul pray? Secondly, what's the content of Paul's request? In short form, he gives it to us in verse 9. He says, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, the Bible speaks of God's will in two senses. In one sense, God's will is his invincible purpose that is bound to be fulfilled in exhaustive detail 
because he's the sovereign creator and ruler and sustainer of everything that he's created. That even includes the disobedient and unbelieving actions of rebel creatures. It's all part of God's will. As Paul says in Ephesians 1.11, we've been predestined according to the will, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's that comprehensive, irresistible purpose and will of God. On the other hand, the Bible also speaks of God's will as his revelation of the behavior on the part of his creatures that bring him delight and pleasure. For example, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you will abstain from sexual immorality. This is what God wants to see in your life. Purity, sexual purity. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, who does what God has revealed will please him. Now, which will is it here that Paul wants the Colossians to understand? Does he want God to give them a sort of a a private look into the secret sovereign plan of God? Or does he want that they will grasp what he has revealed that he wants us to be and to do? I think the answer is, It's pretty evident uh, from what he goes on to say. He says, when you have this kind of a knowledge of God's will, in spiritual knowledge and understanding, spiritual wisdom, the result will be that you walk in a way that is worthy of the Lord. He's talking about God's revealed direction for his people. He's asking us, asking God to enable his Colossian friends and to enable us to ask to grasp what sort of people God intends to make us, the kind of people that God wants to see in us, the kind of motives that please him, as he goes on to say, the kind of walk that brings him credit, the kind of good work that he's pleased with. So Paul's prayer, in short, is... Father, show them what you want in their lives. And give them that spiritual wisdom to discern how to apply the principles that you've revealed in your word to the sometimes thorny and complicated situations that they will face. Give them that kind of wisdom. That's Paul's prayer. We need that revelation from the Father. He's given it to us in the word, but Paul knows we also need the Spirit to illumine our minds to understand it and to give us the wisdom to take it to heart. And he really devotes the bulk of the prayer to unpacking what that will look like when God gives that result, when God gives that gift, what will the result be? Verse 10, that as God gives you that understanding of his will, you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. It's going to change you. It's going to change you. It's going to change your desires, but it's going to change your behavior, actually, because walk is a biblical metaphor for the pattern of our lives, for what we do, 
with our bodies as driven by the desires of our heart, what we say with our mouths, how we spend our time. It's that kind of a biblical metaphor. Paul says that's what, that's the goal, that's the outcome when God gives you an understanding of his will by spiritual wisdom. What I'm longing for is that your behavior will change. Now, every year, Westminster is delighted to welcome a a, a cadre of recovering moralists and legalists to our campus. We're probably all still in that process, I suppose, but uh, many of us are attracted to a place like this as a kind of a gospel haven in the midst of a duty-bound church scene in reaction to the spiritual workaholism that maybe you escaped uh, by the teaching of the gospel. Some of you may have come here seeking a kind of a refuge, uh, a kind of moralist synonymous group for people who are struggling still to, to shed the slavish caricature of the Christian life as all about what we do for God. That's good. Welcome, welcome home. But you also need to be careful a bit. Uh, you know, a member of AA, I, I'm, I'm told, <laughs> um, when he feels the temptation to drink, needs to phone his sponsor and, and, get, and get encouragement. Uh, and, and moralists anonymous may feel the temptation every time we read a command in the Bible to feel that there should be somebody that we should be able to phone to reassure us that that command shouldn't make us too uncomfortable conscience-wise, right? I mean, after all, we can't keep the commands of God anyway, and it doesn't matter because Jesus kept them all for us, and we need that kind of reassurance that those kind of commands really are not calling us to some costly obedience. Uh, and, and, And if we were to interpret those commands in that way, we would be succumbing to moralism. Well, is that going to work here, I guess? Um... You know, can, can we handle that text in this way to say, well, you know, Paul really doesn't, doesn't mean that he wants a certain kind of behavior. He, he, you know, he does use some, admittedly, some pretty, hmm, some four-letter words here, uh, in English at least, good and work, and he puts them right together, and it sounds like that's what he's looking for, good work, bearing fruit in good work. Um, it may, you may at first think, it may sound as if the apostle is, is praying that God would actually make changes in the way we behave, in what we want and what we ask. It may sound that way, but I'm here to tell you that's exactly what he means. That's exactly what he means. And he's not a moralist. Believe me, he's not a moralist. And you see that, I think, when you see how he unpacks that fundamental result when God gives you the knowledge of his will you will walk in a way that honors him that is worthy of him and that pleases him and here's what it's going to look like four participles Greek scholars you've got your Greek Bible open right four participles bearing fruit growing being strengthened giving thanks That's what worthy walking looks like. Bearing fruit in good work, he says. That's the first thing. In fact, the first two are really kind of farming organic metaphors, aren't they? Bearing fruit and growing. If you're looking at your ESV, you notice that 
Dr. Fesco, at my request, fixed it. Uh, he read bearing fruit and growing, not bearing fruit and increasing. I can't explain why the ESV did that. Back in, in the Thanksgiving section, they got growing exactly right. It's growing. It's, it's that organic metaphor. Paul may be thinking of Jesus' parable of the sower, where the sower, as he plants the seed of the word, and seed falls on good ground, it grows and it bears a great crop. I think maybe Paul is also thinking of that older use of the metaphor that goes all the way back to, well, Psalm 1, but also to Jeremiah 17, where through the prophet God says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by a stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and it's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The point of the imagery is there, the only tree that can stay fruitful in dry times is the tree that has a source of constant life-sustaining refreshment and nourishment outside itself. That's the whole imagery of fruit-bearing, a faithful, reliable source of water. And so Paul's very imagery here of bearing fruit and then, and we'll see in a minute, combining that with growing in the knowledge of God, shows, it seems to me, how he can assert so strongly that salvation is all the work of God's free grace. And at the same time, he can affirm, without at all compromising that wonderful good news, that God's saving work includes not only the justification that sets us right legally before God, but also the transformation, we call it sanctification, that realigns the desires of our heart to what pleases him and so produces transformation in the actions of our hands as well. See, the question is not whether or not believing the gospel must bring about a change in our behavior. It must. What distinguishes gospel holiness from moralism is that crucial answer to the question why. Moralism is always answering the question why with so that. Do your best so that God will not be disappointed with you. So that you can feel good about yourself. So that your relationships will be less stressful. Gospel holiness answers the why question because. We love because he first loved us. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. How do we know? She loved much, but the forgiveness comes first, and the love is the reflex. Paul says to the Galatians, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm transformed by the gospel as I look away from myself to Christ's cross where he died for me, and I died not only to the condemnation and penalty of sin, I died to the power, the tyrannical power of sin in him at that moment. And it points me away from myself to the resurrection life of Christ. And it points me away from myself to the way that the almighty Holy Spirit brings the effects, the power of Christ's death and resurrection for me, my death and resurrection in him, right into 
my experience, as the Westminster Larger Catechism says so well about sanctification, it's the work of God's grace. Shorter Catechism says the work of God's free grace. Larger means that too, right? Free grace. Whereby they whom God hath before the foundation of the world chosen to be holy are in time through the powerful operation of the Spirit applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto them are renewed in their whole man after the image of God. Having the seeds, hear the metaphor, farming, the seeds of repentance unto life and all other saving graces put in their hearts and those graces so stirred up, increased, grown, and strengthened that they may more and more die to sin and rise unto newness of life. And to give equal time to the Heidelberg Catechism because it says this so well as well. It asks the question, if our standing before God is all accomplished by Christ from no merit of our own, why do good deeds? And the answer, because Christ having redeemed and delivered us by his blood also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image so that we may testify by the whole of our conduct our gratitude to God for his blessings and that he may be praised by us. Wonderful, wonderful truth. You can bear fruit that pleases the Lord by his strength as you look away from yourself to Christ. And the second in that pair, growing, really points that out because Paul says, as you in good work bear fruit, you also grow in the knowledge of God. The Lord is certainly looking for fruit in our lives, deeds of purity and love and integrity as our grateful response to grace. But we're not just fruit trees. We're called to know him and to grow in knowing him. We're the people. We're the creatures of all his creatures on this earth, made in his image for communion with him. And we're called to know him. And this knowledge is more than cognitively assimilating doctrinal truth about him. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. The truth that he reveals is designed to draw us into communion with the triune God, which Jesus in his high priestly prayer calls eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We need to keep that high calling in mind in the midst of all of our study of biblical truth, that it's designed to lead us deeper into knowing God, that we not only end up orthodox, and that's important, but also that we feast our hearts on the Father's friendship as we know him as he truly is, know him as he's revealed himself in his ever-faithful word. Bearing fruit and growing. And then Paul says, a third participle here, verse 11, empowered. Empowered to endure, that you may be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. And Paul really piles up the power language here. Strengthened and power, as the ESV has it, are both part of the dunamis word group. And then he puts kratos, might, alongside of that. And then he uh, amps up kratos with the might of his glory, that descriptor that invokes radiant visual splendor of God. And with all that concentration of power language, we might expect Paul to go on to speak of daring exploits that evoke the amazement of an audience. 
Instead, he says, the result of Christ's power in our lives is that we will last. That we will endure. That we will suffer long. Is that a a letdown? Uh, Is that a a disappointment? Did you hope that the strength of the Spirit would arm you to capture crowds for Jesus? Well, he may capture crowds through you. But that's not Paul's focus here. One hymn writer talks about not wanting a restless will that hurries to and fro, seeking for some great thing to do or secret thing to know. Uh, I, I, it's good for me to sing that periodically because uh, there's, a, there's a little bit of you know, messianic complex maybe in all of us. A great thing to do, a secret thing to know. I would be treated as a child and guided where I go. Paul says, I'm praying that you will have such strength through the work of the Holy Spirit that you'll make it to the finish line, that you will endure, that you will be patient with one another. And Paul implies that that is an amazing demonstration of the power of God, an astonishing display of the almighty power of God when fallen, fragile people, renewed by the Spirit of God, actually make it to the finish line in faith. Now, Paul has no doubt that that will happen if you belong to Jesus, if you trust in Jesus. He says to the Philippians, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion, will perfect it in the day of Christ Jesus. Um, Because that's the kind of power the Spirit of God has. Well, we need endurance in any academic year. We need the stamina to stay faithful to the commitments that we've made as we begin to labor hard, to learn, to persevere persevere through pressures and papers and final exams. Now, I know Paul's Paul's vision is much bigger than lasting to the second or third week of December or the end of May. He's thinking of something much more comprehensive than that. He's thinking of the day of Christ Jesus when Jesus returns in glory to make our lowly and often weary bodies like his glorious body. But don't forget that your calling in this place, in these months, are part of that lifelong pilgrimage to which God has called you by grace and for which you need his power to endure. You need his power to endure in faith and faithfulness today and tomorrow in week 13 when papers are due, and all the way through the middle of week 15 when the last final exam is endured, you need that too. The scholarly tasks before you are part of your calling from Christ. So when you hit those spots in your studies, or your family, or your church life, when you wonder whether you can possibly go on, remember Paul's prayer and come humbly desperately, confidently to your Father to ask him to strengthen you with all power so that you might last, endure. Well, finally, Paul says, the walk that is worthy of the Lord that pleases him is a walk that is flooded with thanksgiving. And you see, really, verses 12, 13, and 14, once he gets on this thanksgiving theme, it just flows like 
the waters of the Passaic River. I, I once lived in New Jersey, and I've been amazed in this week to watch uh, the waters that I knew as relatively peaceful overflowing the banks of the Passaic and flooding Patterson. Uh, well, that's bad floods for us, but this is good floods of thanksgiving that Paul's talking about. He says we've been rescued, we've been relocated, we've been redeemed, we've been adopted, we've been enriched. Look at all those, just, just briefly. We've been rescued from the domain of darkness, verse 13. Before Christ conquered us, we were captive to a cruel, deceptive, abusive tyrant who kept us in the dark. And that applies to all of us, whether we were evidently, obviously lawless or apparently upright and law-abiding. Of course, Paul can describe himself in what sound like opposite terms. As to the law, blameless, but also a blasphemer and a violent offender and the chief of sinners. It doesn't matter what we look like on the outside, what we perceive ourselves to be, apart from the intervention of God's rescue, we are all in the domain of darkness. But you've been rescued, Paul says. You've been rescued. The God whom we defied has rescued us by grace alone, so now we can call him Father. You've been relocated. He's brought you into the realm of the son of his love, the kindest of kings, the one who stooped to serve and to save his servants by his own death. Paul describes Jesus as the son of his love, perhaps echoing the father's voice at Jesus' baptism and again on the Mount of Transfiguration, the beloved son. But Jesus is not only the supreme recipient of the father's love, the one whom the father loves and treasures above all. Jesus is also the supreme demonstration of the father's love for us. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for, for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. What love. You've been loved that way and relocated into the realm of the son of God's love. And then he talks about redemption, verse 14. You've been redeemed. And he equates it, interestingly, with the forgiveness of sins. Now, in the Greco-Roman world, redemption typically connoted emancipation from slavery. And the Bible uses it in that sense as well. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses looks back to the Exodus, and he talks about God having redeemed them from the house of slavery in Egypt. But the Exodus also reminds us that Israel stood in need of a deeper redemption than simply redemption from slavery, rescue, freedom. The night that the angel of death passed through Egypt, only the blood of the lamb on the doorpost would rescue Israel's firstborn from death. They needed rescue, not just from oppressive slavery, but from the liability to death that they and we, all of us, are under. Redemption is the forgiveness of our sins. And Paul actually makes that more explicit in the parallel over in Ephesians 1, where he talks about redemption through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. The blood of the ultimate Passover lamb marks us and brings us not only freedom from human bondage and demonic bondage, but freedom and deliverance from the just wrath of God, which was poured out on Jesus as he shed his blood for us. 
And all of these really drive toward the point that Paul was making back in verse 12, and that is that we give thanks that the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You can call God Father because he has adopted you as his sons. All of you, men and women, were sons because we have the rights of inheritance. That's what that means in the ancient world. We have the rights of inheritance given to us now by grace, a share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now that that inheritance in one sense is reserved for us in the future. It's the matter of hope. It's the light of the coming new heavens and new earth. But we also taste it now by the presence of the Spirit who is the guarantee, the down payment of our inheritance who lives with us and holds us fast until we receive the full, the full inheritance which is to know God in his beauty, in his presence. You're adopted as children of God. When you hit those stretches in the coming year, when your reserves are low, might be monetary, might be physical, might be mental, emotional, spiritual, when your reserves are low, let let that sense uh, uh, that the gas gauge is on empty Let that be another trigger to you to alert you that it's time to turn to your Father in thankful prayer. It's time to adore him as he deserves to be adored and thanked. And in the process, you'll be reminding yourself how lavishly he's loved you, rescuing you from satanic darkness, relocating you into the realm ruled by his beloved son, Jesus, and redeeming your life from the death you deserve and adopting you as his treasured heir. Paul was praying this for his friends at Colossae because he knew that only God could give it, continually praying it. Let us pray this for ourselves and for each other and with each other, that the Lord may be pleased in the fruit that his spirit bears among us. Good work, deepening knowledge of our Father, endurance, and joyful thanks for his over-the-top generosity in the Son of his love. Jesus Christ. Copyright 2011, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.